All right, perfect. Let's bow our heads and, and start off this morning with prayer. Uh, Father, we just thank you for this bright, new, beautiful day. We just thank you for, um, in the midst of this world that's, that's soaked with so many dangerous and, and sad things, that your light shines and that you're um, willing to shine your light into, into the darkest places and bring healing. Uh, Father, we just pray for this tough topic as we discuss it, that we might um, find hope that our kids might be protected from it, and more than that, that our kids will have freedom from it. In your name, amen. Today we're talking about pornography, which is not an easy thing to talk about. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. How many of you woke up today with a to-do list? Some of you? Some of you woke up with a survive list, right? <laughs> what do I have to do to survive? And then some of you woke up with a to-do list. What I'm convinced about is that Satan wakes up every day. I don't think he even sleeps. He every day is on task on, on his on his task. And that's pretty simple. Steal, kill, and destroy. Any idea what this is right here other than Legos? This is a statistical lifetime. 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, adding up to 80 years. Each Lego represents a year. And some people are on bonus time. That's great. But this is a statistical lifetime. And, and what I try to show on this is we use this as a counseling tool with kids at Patch. What's interesting is getting a kid to talk, like we talked about yesterday, is difficult at times. And this is a tool just for us to say, hey, what do you know about your, your first year of life? Where were you living? What was your home like? Um, parents, pets, you know, what pictures do you remember from that point? And so imagine storytelling through their life up to the point that they are. And this kid at this point, I think I've represented as a 16-year-old. Most of the time we put a little Lego kid you know, for whatever age they're, a little guy or girl sitting on it. But it's a way of telling stories. And what I find interesting is that as you hear a kid's story, they've got great memories. This is when I, um, highlight for that year was that I got to spend a week with grandpa and grandma at cousin camp or something like that. You know, that's when I started first grade. You know, what do you remember about your first grade teacher? And there's lots and lots of good stuff. But the majority of kids that we're dealing with, you start getting to four or five, and that's when they remember dad and mom fighting. That's when they remember hiding and plugging their ears. You get a little bit further, they remember divorces. They remember when um, mom started getting this boyfriend. They remember unsafe touches. They remember um, feeling alone. They remember feeling stupid at school. Loss in the family where someone that they really depended on, maybe a grandparent, passed away. Um, we've got kids that have gone through suicide of their parents, discovered their parents you know, after the suicide. Horrible, horrible things. But you can even imagine your kids, right? They've got great stories, and they've also got losses in here. For our kids at Patch, we finally get to a point that they've shared the good, the bad, and a lot of them are the disappointments, the mistrusting, um, the habits that they've developed for coping. And we ask them, how much of this do you want to have defined this? How much of this do you want to set these relationships? And the reason that this comes to mind is that I ask teenagers this pretty annoying question. I, I, I ask them, how many of you believe that at some point you're going to meet this person of your dreams, your heart is going to go nuts, and your tongue is going to fail you? You're going to pursue their heart, you're going to um, win their heart, you're going to get married, um, and then you're going to be together till death do you part. How many of you believe that's in your future? And I, I have kids do this, this, or this. Guess what I hear from from majority of teens, Christian, non-Christian, Adventist. What sort of, what do you think I'm getting? 
Why do you think that is, that the majority of kids, I have a few kids that are like, yes, but that's the minority. Majority of kids are either this or I don't know. What, why would that be? So trauma, background, in their background, they could have parents that divorced, right? Grandparents that divorced, uncles and aunts that have divorced, friends. So they've got a lot of, of brokenness in the past. What else? Poor self-esteem. No one's going to want, <clears throat> no one's going to want me. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry about that. So self-esteem affects that. What else? Okay, so they're so hopeless about the future that they don't believe that that's <clears throat> even their, you know, and I'll be honest with you. I remember praying as a, as a teenager, God, please help me to be able to have sex before you return. <laughs> <laughs> okay, confess here. Anyone else? Anyone else? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, that was blunt. Okay, what else? <laughs> Anything else that you think of that would keep a kid from believing that that's in their future? Role models, media. Yeah, media is big on that. You don't see many of that, that sort of thing happening. Yeah, so going through that. How many people know the statistic for the likelihood of a marriage succeeding? 50%. Interesting, isn't it? Did you realize that that statistic is really, um, kids, kids will tell you, people will tell you about 50-50 chance. They might fudge it a little bit which way it goes, but approximately 50-50 chance of, of marriage succeeding is, is what the statistics tell us. But here's what's, what's mind-blowing is that that's overall statistics of, of marriage, including remarriages. If you take first-time covenanted marriages, and by that, it's a first-time marriage in which you're doing it, um, covenanting, it, it, making a covenant in front of God. So, so we're talking not just a, a going to the judge or something like that, eloping. This is a covenant marriage. First-time covenant marriages have over 70% chance of succeeding. The problem is, is that if you divorce, the likelihood of having multiple divorces increases. And so that population that divorces actually starts skewing the, the statistic. And so when people hear that, they're like 50-50 chance. That's a coin flip, right? And if you're doing a coin flip, how many of you feel good about, you know, that's scary. But for kids, they need to know um, that that's a possibility for the future. And so if kids are at this age, 14, 15, 16, saying, I don't believe I'm going to be getting married someday, or I don't think it's likely for me to be in a strong covenant marriage that I can't plan on that in my future, how does that change their dating life? How does that change their personal pursuit of, of purity? How does that change their sexuality if they don't believe that that's in store for them? You know, so when we read this verse, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, it is something that is, I've seen as valid. Kids' dreams, before they're even reaching that age of dating, they've had a dream stolen from them. And I think that's part of our job is to restore it. Restore it. And God says, I have come that you might have what? Life. What kind of life? Abundant. Full life. Full life. And that doesn't mean that this world is our, is our home, but that means that God is indwelling this part of our life. You know, that our best years are, are still to come. And, and really, I want to get that in our brain is that as we go into this, this session is that, is that it is definitely a battle between fullness and brokenness. All this, all this is, is part of that. Um, the launch process that we talked about quite a few times already, I'm just going to give you a, a quick synopsis of it. 
The child is born without any ability to do anything. The parent has to do it all. The goal is to launch the child into being fully um, responsible for their own life because the parent can't be, right? There's a phase of teaching and discipline, and there's also a phase of coaching and mentoring, and this is a constant challenge for us parents. Families resist change. Have you noticed that? We don't like to change. Kids don't like to change. Parents don't like to change. So here's a question for you, and, and really, if you're with a couple, you might want to you know, just really think it through together. Um, when did you have the toothbrushing talk, and who did it, dad or mom? Or did you do it differently for your son or daughter, the toothbrushing talk? How many of you remember having the toothbrushing talk with your kids? Did you talk about plaque? Gingivitis? That's kind of a ridiculous question, isn't it? Because toothbrushing starts with you're brushing their gums, right? The parents doing it. Over time, they get to fiddle with the toothbrush, but it's really mostly getting messy. You're teaching them not to swallow the toothpaste, even though they can at first. And then slowly, they become more responsible. Yesterday, we talked about the teen years where you might have to start smelling their breath again to make sure they're doing it because they're more responsible than you are, but you still have a role to play in their life, right? And so all this stuff happens. You never have the toothbrushing talk. It's a phase in which you have lots and lots of conversations, lots and lots of conversations. Just when you think you're done with it, what do you have to do? Talk about it again. So here's the thing that I want to ask. Is there anything in, parents, in parenting that is the talk that requires one conversation and it's but isn't it interesting that, that when you start talking to, to parents and for teens, I get this question all the time, when should I have the talk with my kids about sexuality? When should I have the talk about por- pornography? At what age should dad do it or should mom do it? Doesn't that hit you kind of strong that, that why would we think that that would work for one of the most com- complicated human relationship, one of the most complicated pleasure loops possible? <laughs> Why is it that we think that one conversation would take care of it? And why would we think that we can start when they're all the way down here? Right? Because, like it or not, it's a development launch. And so some of you have kids down here. It's not too late. Some of you have kids right down here. It's not too early. Okay? It's a process, and it's, and it's age-appropriate. And that's the thing that drives me crazy is that for any of us, to, for me to say it and for you to hear it, to say, how do I age-appropriately talk to my kid? It depends on the kid, and it's hard. You know, and it takes insight. It takes prayer. It takes you know, just kind of trying different things. And part of it is, is that it just takes, takes trying, you know, realizing that you might fail and you have to adjust, you have to adjust. But it what I recommend is that it's lots of conversations. Um, the other option that we see, um, well, we'll talk about this. Our goal today is to present a whole section that helps kids understand an internal reason not to do porn, not to engage in masturbation. So an internal reason to do it, not because of fear, not because of fear of being caught or not because of fear of being exposed, but because of a right internal gut reason for doing it, because of values. You know, the other option that I see is, is parents that are like, my kid doesn't have internet, my kid doesn't have anything. Um, they have no access, they go to a Christian school, they're at camp meeting, they'll never see this stuff. <laughs> um, and so what we say is this kid lacks the ability to do it. At some point, they're going to be shown an image, they're going to be asked to do something, and there's just no c- capacity of that kid to handle it. You know, one of the skills that we teach kids is if something crazy comes onto the screen, 
And that happens with computers, doesn't it? Where suddenly you click on a link or something and suddenly there's, there's pornography everywhere. Um, you teach the kid to turn off the CPU. If they have to, they, if it's not a laptop, yank the power cord out. Shut the thing down. Um, most kids don't know that. You know, they, they're not taught that and so they try to X out the windows. What could happen if they're trying to X out windows on the pornography spam sites? opens up more and more and more. And so what we have to do is prepare our kids. The likelihood of them on computers doing innocent stuff and having stuff come up at them is very, very high. And so if you've had the conversations and training with your kids that they know that they can break the computer, <laughs> that they shut the laptop screen, that they unplug whatever, that they can do that, that equips them so that they're, they're prepared for it. It doesn't increase the likelihood of them seeing it. It just equips them for it. And so what we say is it makes sense that parents live in that fear, control, I'm gonna create a bubble. And yes, we wanna create it as safe as possible environment for our kids, but this world has a, has, a, has a tendency of showing our kids stuff that we'd never imagined that they'd see. Okay, let's keep moving along here. Um, defining pornography is really interesting is that I find, especially talking with teenagers, that um, they love to get into arguments about what's pornography and what's not. Is this good or is this bad? And so, um, I came across this a, a while ago. Timothy Keller in his book, I'm Closing the Porn Window, introduces these two words, form and function. And I find it really interesting. What form is, is what does it look like? Is it a picture? Is it a, a, is it a um, written story? Is it a, a piece of, of um, marble or, or what exactly is it? Is it a catalog? And so, you know, from a form side, if it's a video of people having sex, that we, we know the form of that, right? And then the other question is, what's the function of it? Is the function, so if you have a video of people having sex, the function probably is arousal, and, and so it's pretty clear that form and function both align on, on saying, yeah, that's pornography. Pretty interesting, right? Pretty basic. The form and the function are, are in agreement. What I find interesting is that, imagine a swimsuit catalog. What is the form of a swimsuit catalog? Pictures of women in swimsuits probably, right? And the pictures are taken in such a way that would um, make women that are trying to buy a swimsuit say, I would look great in that, right? Or to say, that's been airbrushed. That's not real. <laughs> She's had surgery. <laughs> you know, that sort of, whatever it is. But the goal is to sell swimsuits. So the, you know, in a sense, they try to create the form in such a way that it would, would create people to buy a swimsuit. And then the description underneath is gonna give um, information about the swimsuit sizes, pricing, ordering information, right? So the form of it and the function of it, what's the function? Sell swimsuits. Pornography, if your 14 year old boy has it, has the form changed? Form's still the same thing, right? The same thing that you'd look at, the form is the same, but now what's the function? He's using it for what? Arousal, he's using it for sexual discovery, he's using it for something different than the purpose was. And the reason I share that is that sometimes we get into these arguments about, yeah, it's pornographic or it's not, or it's nakedness or it's not. I say deepen that conversation. Has anyone been to Florence and seen the statue of David? Pretty amazing. Was it pornographic? It's a massive statue of David. David is naked. Um, the form of it is nakedness, but the function of it is awe. The function of it is like, I cannot believe that that was done by a human hand to make that, that statue. You know, and so I, I, maybe some people are aroused by it, but most people are like, wow, 
That's amazing artistry. And so the reason I share that is because it's easy for you and your kids to get into arguments, but, but what I say is, is start breaking it down. What is the form of it and what's the function of it? You know, there's some criticism that, that I think is justified against the, the early um, ascetics. Those were the people that went off into the desert. Do you remember hearing about them? Us as an Adventist denomination make fun of them quite a bit. So they're the early church um, fathers that went off into the desert to, to um, try to get closer with God. And I kind of made fun of them for a long time because what's that idea? They're fleeing from sin, right? And so they're going out to the desert fleeing from sin. But as I started reading through some of the, the readings, what I discovered is that they went out into the desert for one specific purpose, so that they would have nothing to blame for what's going on in their mind. Because the reality is, is, that, is that in this world, there's, there's lots of other people to blame for stuff, Right? And you hear this quite a bit, even some of the literature, like every young man's battle or every man's battle has this idea that, that us guys would be less sexually tempted if what? If it wasn't for you women, right? <laughs> and how long your, your whatever is and, and how you're wearing whatever. And so there's that idea and, and you, it crosses cultures. You know, it's, it's, it's a woman's fault that us guys are, are slipping. And what those early church monastics did was that they knew that it wasn't women's fault. They knew that they could be in the desert in the most sterile of environments, and what would their minds be doing? Sexualizing things. Sexualizing things. I'm much more concerned. I am very concerned about kids that are looking at porn. I am very concerned about kids that are sexualizing things that weren't ever intended to be sexualized. I'm concerned about us as men and, and women that are, are taking people that are alive and human and objectifying them. And that's on us. You know, so it's easy to look at the people that are creating porn and say, you know, the, those are horrible people. But honestly, us as human beings sexualize each other. You know, and until that stops, there's going to be porn. Does, does that make sense? And so this conversation is, is super rich. It's really, um, to me, I've, I've seen kids do it and respond in really mature ways, in ways that they understand that it's much, um, what they bring to it is as important as what the world is bringing. Does, does that make sense? We're teaming up with that. Okay, so this is where I just try to shock you for a few minutes. This is old statistics. All the internet statistics are really murky in this area. If you ever want to stay up late at night, go to Josh McDowell's website, josh.org, and you'll see all sorts of parent resources, statistics. It will freak you out. 90% um, of 18, 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography. 20 to 30% of adult industry traffic, that's the traffic that's going to adult websites, is um, children that are, are generating that traffic. And if you look at the adult industry compared to even like Amazon and all those things, it outshadows it by a, a landslide. 80% of children using email receive inappropriate messages. Majority of the teens nowadays don't use email. They have email so they can sign up for stuff but they don't use email. But if you go through, because they sign up for so much weird stuff that they do have a lot of inappropriate links or spam or, or stuff in their email. 70% of teens have accidentally come across pornography on the, web, on the web. We'll break that statistic down a little bit and I think you'll see some, some different things on it. Um, so as you've seen this, did I say boy or girl? Statistically, you'll see some differences on, on porn use, but um, as far as exposure, and even nowadays, the, the use of girls engaged in pornography is climbing at a, at a really high rate. So if you have a daughter, don't assume that it's, it's a boy problem, you know, just because it's, it's, a, it's the world that they're, that they're living in. 
Um, what are they seeing online? So this is looking at, at different things that, different types of content. So kids that have seen online pornography, they're revealing what sort of stuff they've seen. So number one, have seen group sex on the internet. So 83% of the boys, 57% of the girls. Number two, have seen porn showing same-sex intercourse. So about 70% of the boys, 55% of the girls. Have viewed um, sex acts involving bondage. Number three, 39% and 23. This statistic was taken before um, the Shades of Grey movies, which were uh, movies that came out, I guess there's two of them now, which were highly involving bondage and, and, and some horrible things. My guess is that with those movies, this has spiked up, you know, just because kids are curious about stuff. Um, have viewed bestiality, so number four is sex with animals. 32% of the boys, 18 of the girls. Um, have seen rape or sexual violence online, 15% um, of the boys, 9% of the girls, and have seen child pornography. So that's 15% um, and 9. So here's what's interesting is that there's people that are into porn, and I was unprepared. I was giving a presentation for therapeutic foster parents in Seattle. And so this is parents. These are people that are foster parents taking on a, a very challenging group of kids. And that was where I met my first pro-porn parent at a seminar. I wasn't prepared, <laughs> um, to say the least. And what's interesting about it was that he was pushing back. He's saying, well, they're not really, you know, most of the child porn out there isn't really child children. So like the websites that are 16 and under, those are really, you know, 18, 19 year olds that are posing as, as 16 year olds. Okay, let's talk form and function. If they are representing it, even though it's not a, maybe she's 18, but they're representing her as a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old, the form of it is what? And then the function of it is people are getting turned on because they, they're thinking about 14, 16-year-olds, right? So from a form function standpoint, that's where, where regardless of its age of the person, if the form and function are, are causing turn on because it's a minor, that, that's a problem. That, that's a huge problem. And to me, that's a much richer discussion, isn't it? Um, than, than arguing over, is she really 18? Um, are you getting turned on because you think she's young? You know, and, and that's, that to me is really interesting. Freaks you out a little bit, doesn't it? So here's what, what we talk about quite a bit is that for kids, I was a missionary kid in Japan. Um, don't be too impressed because I always wanted to be a missionary because in Japan, it's pretty cushy. My dad taught at a university, so it's not like we're in the jungle doing missionary stuff. <laughs> we read missionary stories in, as a kid, but, but, but I was naive. You know, I'll totally give you that. And I remember as a kid, we came back on furlough and we we're up with my grandparents in Canada, um, extended family, Sabbath lunch. And my brothers and I wanted to know what the F word meant. Um, it's, a, it's a swear word. <laughs> and so guess what we did? We asked at Sabbath lunch. And one of the cousins said, I'll tell you later. <laughs> And he did. Would that conversation happen now? Probably not. You'd Google it, right? Because Google will tell you stuff in the privacy. You have no embarrassment about it. You just Google it. And so if you Google stuff, what is Google going to tell you is normal? What does sex look like? And what Google is saying is, is it could involve a group. It could even involve an animal. For it to be violent could be, could be normal, right? And so when kids are looking at their future expectations for sexuality, some of this stuff gets in there because Google's saying it's, it's, it's pretty normal. That's what, that's what 
fun-loving, consenting adults do, right? And so to me, that scares me because, because kids are getting a rotten view of, of sexuality. But here's the thing is, is the retort from the church is, don't. <laughs> you know, we don't necessarily give kids a picture of, of sexuality, and, and we'll develop that a little bit more this morning. Um, this is taken from a fantastic study that was done by Barna Research um, probably about two years ago. Their book called The Porn Phenomenon. Anyone have a copy of it? It's about $40. What I'd recommend is every church, every school have a copy. It's just really useful information. What they did was they studied um, kids, so teenagers. They studied young adults. And as any Barna study would do, they included youth pastors and, and senior pastors. So imagine that, that four, four quadrant group of people. And they studied the difference between Christian kids and secular kids. And what they really discovered, this is just kids in general. Um, the top line right here, it's kind of hard to read. It's, it's the teens, 13 to 17 year old. How many, what percentages come across um, pornography? So the first one would be daily, weekly, once or twice a year. So if you look at that, it's, it's um, 49% come across it at least once a month. That doesn't mean they're seeking it out. That just means they, they come across it. They could be doing an innocent search on the line and, and it just something pornographic comes across. Um, the statistic drops when it comes to seeking out. So you've got 26, you've got 37% are seeking it out. At least once a month is, is what their statistics are showing. Um, and that's kids in a broad range. Um, this includes both boys and girls in their statistics, although they break it down further in their, in their document. Fascinating stuff. It's, it's really worth, worth taking a look at. Um, it's called the porn phenomenon, and it's, I got it as a PDF off of Barna's site. It's something that they did with Josh McDowell Ministries, Covenant Eyes, which is a web program, as well as, as Barna. Um, they commissioned it for a, a set-free summit that they did about a year ago. This is something else that I find fascinating. This is another question that they asked um, both teens and young adults. So it's from 13 to 24-year-olds. And the question was, is this usually or always wrong? And so they had a way of ranking these things. So at number first one, taking something that belongs to someone else, 81%, 88% said that's usually or always wrong. Um, having a romantic relationship with someone other than your spouse, 75%. You feel pretty good about this so far, right? Um, saying something isn't true is 71%. Not recycling is 56%. <laughs> Let's come down here. Viewing pornographic images is at 32 Reading erotic pornographic content, 27. Watching sexually explicit TV, images on a TV or movies is 24. Just to visualize that, let's just say we have 100 kids in the room here and we have a pizza feed. And we give them pizza and cans of pop and at the same time we have porn showing on the video screen here. And that's the only trash can. What this is saying is that we'll get more complaints from the teens about not having a recycling trash can than we would be about the images that are showing on the screen. Interesting, isn't it? But before we berate it too much, um, how many of your kids um, know songs about recycling? Seriously, my kids are, are seven and eight years old and they can sing little recycling songs about, because at school they have little videos on recycling and, and they learn stuff. Um, when you're at a store, you can see recycling and, and there's model good behavior around recycling, right? It's an easy conversation to have about recycling. And so for me, I'm not necessarily down on that because I know that if we talk about it enough, if we model it enough, if we spend enough time on it, something as crazy as recycling can raise in our kids' consciousness. 
Does, does that make sense? The reason this is so low is, is that it's hard to talk about. It's really not visual. And there's definitely not, not something that, that we spend that much time with our kids, kids dealing with. Um, Google is now teaching many of our kids about sex you can ask in the privacy of your browser. There was a mom a couple weeks ago that I came up after a session and she said that her 10-year-old had gone online and he had typed in this search. What should a 10-year-old body, boy's body look like? Um, what do you think Google told him? All sorts of crazy stuff, right? But was his thought process, his desire, you know, am I normal? You know, am I normal? And Google's an easy place for kids to try to f hunt for that sort of thing. Um, the privacy of their browser. And so that's really what we're competing against. We're competing against a non-judgmental information source, right? But it's not a, it's not a, it's, it doesn't match up with what we want our kids to be learning. And so what we have to realize is that how do we create relationships, connection with our kids in a way that we can be their source of wisdom, so that we can be their source of, of am I normal, am I not normal? You know, rather than their friends in Google. Um, I'd like to spend a few minutes, and some of you are saying we're flying through these handouts. Um, the answers, once again, are in there. All my slides are available. Um, if you type in the MI camp to the text 44222, or else I have a um, sign-up sheet up here that you can get all the handouts. So don't feel freaked out. But here's some ways that, that I've shared with teens that helps them understand what pornography is doing to them. Um, so one of the things that, that happens with pornography is, is a loss of focus, loss of time, loss of impact. Um, so kids that are involved in pornography find that, that they could be doing homework and, and suddenly they get into this warp of looking at porn, going to more porn, going to more porn, and hours of time can slip by. They should be writing a paper, but they're doing that. They should be calling someone, but because of the anxiety that they're feeling, they end up going to porn. And so instead of solving stuff, instead of getting productive, um, instead of using good use of their time, pornography starts becoming the thing that, that destroys their time. Another thing is that it increases appetite and decreases sexual satisfaction. Um, we had a, a boy at Patch that had told us he was masturbating 12 times a day. There's just a sadness with that. You know, this kid's got a craving. He's got a craving for satisfaction for whatever, and it's an unrelenting it's an unrelenting thing that he's, he's chasing. So imagine a thirst that just increases each time you drink. Does, does that make sense? And, and that's what our kids are, are going through. That's what pornography does is it increases the appetite, keeps increasing it, but at the same time decreasing the satisfaction that, that people gain from it, um, unrelenting that way. Um, an interesting um, op-ed piece that was in GQ magazine, and one of the reasons I share from GQ with teens is that they sometimes turn stuff off if it's overly Christian-based. And so this is GQ doing a study, um, you know, looking at, at some of the stuff. GQ's focus, and they've had a couple articles about it, is that pornography is bad for people. That's actually what they as a magazine have, have said several times. Um, some of the reasons for that is that there's this thing that they look at called the Coolidge effect. That's novelty seeking. That means that as people engage in pornography, the Coolidge effect makes them less turned on by what originally turned them on, and they seek something uh, maybe a little bit more... Um, arousing. So tastes become extremely, increasingly extreme or deviant, um, which is really interesting to think about. Um, you know, and, and my confession, I'll, I'll just say it right now, is that I come from a, a background of struggling with pornography. I found freedom and I found life from it. Um, my, when I started on pornography, it was uh, magazines. And 
my parents did find my pornography at one point, and guess what they found? Glossy pictures of women, right? And even though my parents were having some weird conversations with me, um, they could kind of understand why I'd be looking at that, right? Glossy pictures, naked women. What's happening now is that as people are finding both kids' pornography online and husbands or wives, what they're finding stuff is, is stuff that's hard to explain. Why would you have your hard disk full of rape porn? You know, why would you even look at that stuff? And what you find is that people have a hard time explaining why they would look at it, but the Coolidge effect is really what's, what's behind that, is that what used to turn them on now doesn't. The other crazy thing about it is that the aroused brain does stuff that our, our brain in calm state would never do. And by arousal, that could be sexual arousal or anger, right? And so there was a study done a while ago just to kind of see what happens when our, our brains get sidetracked. It was done at Stanford University, and it's really a gross study. But what they had done was took these undergraduate guys and given them a laptop, and they had to respond to these questions about what they would do sexually. What sort of activities? Would they ever give someone drugs to increase the chance of them being able to have sex? Would they have unprotected sex? Would they ever lie in order to have sex? Would they engage in, you know, in all these sexual questions, right? And the guys answered them and then turned in their results. And then they had the guys take the same study again. And this time they were masturbating as they took the study, looking at images. And when they hit a certain level of arousal, they'd answer a question. Make sense? And when they compared those two responses, they discovered that the guys would do stuff in a aroused state that they'd never do in a calm state. That when they were aroused, they would actually do, they would consider lying, they'd consider unprotected sex, they'd do, I mean, all sorts of things that they'd, they'd never consider before. And the reason I share that is because when people are online, they're aroused, right? And then suddenly an image appears, and what will they do? They might follow after it, where in their calm state, they'd be repulsed by it. Make sense? And so it's easy to judge, but what I have to say is, is understand the, the trail and how pornography is working. And so if your kid's looking at stuff that just is appalling to you, it probably is appalling to them too in their calm state. Does, does that make sense? And what we have to realize is that as their brain is flipped, how do we get their whole brain engaged right now rather than shutting down, shutting down parts of it? 19% of people involved with, with porn addiction report premature ejaculation. 25% disinterested with sex with a partner. Is that fascinating? They'd rather have sex by themselves than sex with a, with a partner. 31% have difficulty reaching orgasm. 34% experience erectile dysfunction. And so what's mind-blowing about these statistics is that probably for them to reach orgasm, Instead of being present in that sex, they have to go into the memories. Or they have to make the situation that they're in pornographic. Does, does that make sense? And so in a, in a relationship that God calls to be beauty and, and pure physical intimacy and presentness, they're becoming vacant. They're having sex with someone else in that moment. You know, and that's both men and women that are vacating that sexual relationship in order to reach orgasm. To me, that's a sadness, you know, but it's the reality that, that a lot of people are going through. And, and hopefully we can understand that that's not what our, you know, when I, I share this with kids is that that's not a path that you want to pursue. You know, for the boys out there, you know, premature ejaculation, erectile stuff, that's bad, <laughs> you know, and, and they stare at me <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's bad. Um, number three, it separates us from people and makes us consumers of people. To me, this is probably one of the most important things for our kids to, to understand. Um, 
the lie that kids and adults say is this is not hurting anyone. This is a victimless thing. It's purely safe. You know, no one's getting hurt. No one's getting pregnant. Everyone's happy being involved. Um, there was a, a, quite a few different studies done about the people that make pornography. And these are some of the things they found about the, the actual um, girls that were in it. Frequent drug use to dull the physical and emotional pain. The type of sexual intercourse shown on the videos and online is physically painful. You know, and what's interesting is that there's kids that report that they look at online porn so they can learn how to have sex, right? And so there's kids that are engaging in physical pain, not realizing that what's happening online requires drugs for those people to be able to sustain that. You know, it's a physically and emotionally painful process. A high probability of having sexual abuse as children, um, abusive or distant father. And so if you start looking at the trail of that, there's huge amounts of, of pain around that. Um, coercion, show up to do something and different than they agreed to. So there might be a girl that agrees to pose, um, do a video with, with one guy, she shows up and there's six. Can she go home at that point? You know, but would you ever know watching that video that, that she's afraid for her life? You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Human sex trafficking, half of prostitutes are creating pornography. There's a video that's actually online. I don't have a link to it, but um, you could probably find it on YouTube. I'd probably be a little afraid to hunt for it even, but it shows image after image of porn star their clothes, but um, ones that have overdosed or committed suicide. I think it's five or six minutes long of image after image after image. You know, this is not a victimless crime, is that there's stuff happening off screen um, that is just demoralizing. Less abusive, wow. Yeah, so what she's saying is that, that pornography is more abusive, creating pornography is more abusive than being, being a prostitute. And for any of your churches, there's a series of videos. Um, the, the video that I recommend, and it's in our resources, is a video called Chosen. It's put out by Shared Hope International. It's a, it's a video that, that talks about um, how kids are, are groomed into the sex industry and how they're selected, um, how the vulnerable kids are picked, how they're, how they're brought into that. We have had huge success with that, that series. What I'd say is, is show it to your boys too. A majority of times that we've had kids um, almost on that line of going into, into um, well, being, being taken into the sex industry, it's the boys who saw that, that the kids were being groomed, the girls were being groomed. They're the ones that had enough perspective to, to contact someone for help. And, and so educate your boys in this. Um, most of the kids won't find it themselves, but their girlfriends and, and the other boys in the school can, can identify it. Uh, um, Chosen is by Shared Hope International, um, a group that's been working with this, this sort of thing for years and years, started by a former congresswoman in Washington State. Really good stuff. I don't agree with a lot of what Jonah Mix says, but I love this saying. It said, he says, I'm not interested in a world where men really want to watch porn, but resist because they've been shamed. I'm interested in a world where men are raised from birth with such unshakable understanding of women as living human beings that they're incapable of being aroused by their exploitation. So our kids, especially the teens, have a strong sense of justice. They're fired up by justice in a way that I don't think any generation before has been. And so if you help them understand that this is a thing that, that breaks people down, this industry this is exploitation, is exploitation. Even, you know, the storyline of she's just doing it for college money, no. You know, it's, it's exploitation. And so humanizing people, 
huge power in that. This is actually what, what helps a lot of kids understand is that I can't get turned on by someone else being hurt. You know, I will not get turned on by, by someone's innocence being broken. So comment for that. Um, number four, it increases our sense of powerlessness and victim thinking. And so kids that are engaged in this just are so frustrated because they can't stop the thoughts, they can't stop the actions, they can't stop the compulsion of it. And so that translates into other areas of their life where they just don't, don't necessarily try and they see themselves as, as unmanageable. I can't control my, myself, I can't control anything. Um, final thing that, that I've shared, and there's a lot more than this, is that it, it reduces ways for God to work in our lives um, and for us to experience him. So addictions as a whole, but especially even pornography, is a masking coping mechanism. So there's real hurts, there's real desires, there's real pain, there's real needs, right? But instead of meeting those in God and in the things that God provides as goodness, we're meeting them in, in pornography and, and, and sexuality, right? And so if we're meeting God's needs, something that God can provide in a false God, then how can God work in that area? Does that, does that make sense? And so instead of us being able to experience freedom and God working in our lives, we're working in our own lives. You know, there's not the surrender, there's not the power to God. And so me, to me, that's the sadness that I, that I feel is that, is that God wants to do so much. You know, God wants to bring so much freedom. He wants to heal the, the stuff. He wants to work in our lives and relationships and bring us to a, another level of belonging. But when we're trying to solve it ourselves with things that distract from God and numb us from God, um, we lose out on that. That doesn't mean that God's not available, forgiving, all those kind of things. It just means that, God, I've got it handled. I don't need you. And God respects that. So the brain on porn. Um, we talked about yesterday, real quick, the brain stem, the limbic system, the frontal lobe. What I find interesting is almost everything that Satan does with, with our, our, the negative things is that he has one part of the brain that gets overstimulated and several other parts of the brain that get... Um, disconnected. So instead of using our whole brain with our physicality, our memories, and our emotions, and our thought life, he'll divide it up and, and suppress one of them. With, with pornography, the limbic system as well as the physical becomes everything, and the front logical part disappears. Think about that. So instead of being present, instead of being thoughtful, instead of being involved, it's, it's all in the, in the memory system. Tomorrow we'll talk about video games. Um, you look at a lot of what the kids are doing nowadays. With, you give the kids a GoPro camera and a cliff, and what do they do? They get rid of the rest of their brain, and they jump off that cliff to get it recorded, right? That's Satan saying that this system here in the back of the brain with the, in, with the um, what is that, the in, endorphins, the fight or flight, that takes over. That takes over. You know what Satan does sometimes in Sabbath schools? He has the frontal lobe on fire, doing all the thinking, and instead of being emotionally mature, he shuts down some of the emotions and some of the connections about people, and we end up saying really hurtful things to people. Does, does that make sense? And so Satan uses it even in church for us to just do single part brain thinking, and, and so what, what God intends is full brain joy, full brain sexuality, not just one part being stimulated, the other part, other part being gone. Any people here fly fishermen or fishermen? Fantastic. We got someone here. Um, which hook would you prefer to use? This one has a barb 
where this one doesn't. The difference that I have is when I go fishing, and I'm not that great of a fly fisherman, but, but to catch a fish with a fly, you first have to trick him, and then when you get him to bite, with a barbed hook, you can let off the pressure, you can let the line go, and the fish has it in its mouth, but it can't spit it out, okay? It's stuck in its lip. With a barbless hook, you have to keep the pressure on. You have to keep the pressure on. And so I prefer a barbed hook because I'm a, I'm a poor fisherman, but when I get onto the water, I'll look at my regulations, and if it says barbless hook required, I'll take my, my I have a plier type thing, and I'll break off the barb. I'll just break it off, and that way I have a barbless hook. So the reason I share this is that um, a lot of times as parents, we're playing defense. Can I get the right filter? Can I move to the right place? Can I make sure my kids have the right friends? You know, we're playing defense. And what I'd like us to consider over the next minute is that how can we help our kids become barbless hooks rather than barbed hooks? How can we make it so that when they see it, it's easier for them to spit it out of their lives rather than something that burrows in and, and is hard to disengage? Okay, because what's the likelihood of our kids seeing it? <laughs> Statistics said 90%, right? And what I want to say is that for us, each one of us should just assume 100%. Yeah. Okay, just because the likelihood of them seeing it is so great for that. Just assume 100%, but then also assume that our goal is to, is to help dislodge it from their lives. Um, here's some of the, the barbs that we see. Um, one of the big ones is secrecy. Um, when you look at kids that are molested, nearly every time it started with, can you keep a secret? Can you keep a secret? And there's a huge difference between good secret and bad secret. You know, for our family, we have good secrets like birthday surprises and presents and stuff like that. But we also teach a lot on, on we don't keep secrets. If someone asks us to keep a secret that might be hurting you or someone else, we don't do that. You know, we don't keep secrets if someone's getting hurt. We don't keep secrets if it's something that... that you know, keep this from your dad or mom. We don't, we don't do that kind of thing. We do keep stuff in confidence, you know, and so I don't share everyone's, what they tell me, but, but we don't do secrecy. Shame. Shame is a huge one. Brene Brown's written quite a bit about it. She's um, not necessarily from a Christian standpoint, but really helpful information on shame research. Um, have you guys studied the difference between shame and guilt? Exactly. Shame says you're bad, Guilt says, I did something bad. And that might sound really similar, but it's worlds apart. If I break something, guilt says, I should be more careful. I need to make restitution, you know, those sorts of things. If it's shame, it's I'm such a klutz, I'm an uncaring person, you know, and those things I, I don't feel like I can change or, or deal with. Yes, please. I think that we found huge power in shaming people just because it's such a, um, it's so effective. Um, let me give you an example. Is, is we really watch these words with our kids. Is little brothers um, get this said to them all the time. You're so annoying. That's a shame thing. Um, what you're doing is annoying. Is is a guilt conversation. Does it, does that make sense? If you're annoying, can you change that? Really not. But if it's if it's um, you know what you did was annoying, that you can do that differently. And so you're right, there is, there is huge power in that. And so I think as far as a church, um, we've used shame because it, it, it's visceral. People feel it. They want to take it off. You know? But at the same time, um, there's people that have been shamed for years. 
You even look at Martin Luther. They, they tried to shame him, and what did he do? He was convicted, right? And, and he's, he withstood all that condemnation and all the stuff that was said against him. So I, I do sense that our kids, we want to get that internal understanding that I make mistakes, I can fix those mistakes. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Um, let me give you an example. So you've got an eight-year-old boy that's at home. He's doing a paper, and he comes across pornography online. He looks at it. His reaction is, is a combination of, of uh, yuck. And at the same time, he can't stop looking at it. His hands tingle. He gets an erection from it. And he tries to turn it off, and he goes back to it because he's kind of curious whether he can see it again. His mom catches him, said, wait till your dad gets home. Dad gets home and says, you shouldn't look at that. It's disgusting. And the kid's like, okay. But that night, he can't stop thinking about it. And as he goes through his mind, he's like, I kind of liked it, but it kind of made me feel sick. If I like something that's disgusting, what does that make me? I must be disgusting. And if I'm disgusting, what do I end up doing with that? I better keep it a secret. Because if other people knew how disgusting I was, they would reject me, right? And so this cycle goes on and on. And what I have to say is that for boys to come out talking about their struggle with pornography is much easier than girls coming out and sharing their struggle. Um, for a girl to overcome the stigma of saying that I, I've struggled with pornography is brutal. I don't have it in my resources, but um, I'll, I'll try to add it into the thing. I can go on. Most of the stuff that I'm sending you guys is online, so I'll add it. But there's a, a website called, I think it's a horrible name, but it's called like Dirty Girl Ministries or something. And yeah, it's a horrible name, but fantastic heart of the people doing it. It's resources for girls struggling with porn. Her testimony is powerful. Um, and really what, what she's sharing is that for a girl struggling with pornography, the shame and secrecy is, is on overdrive. Does, does that make sense? And so boys, it is already hard, but girls, it's even harder. Ignorance about their body. This is really important is that for kids that don't know about their body, who are they going to go find out about it from? Google. So you want to create that conversation early. Teach your kids about their physicality. Um, what we say is use the correct words for it. It's breasts, it's vagina, it's penis, you know, those words. Having little pet names might be okay when you're really small, but really the pet names tend to um, just create some, some poorness around it. Um, try to be careful with the vulgar sides of it, you know, and, and just call it what it is. And so ignorance about the body, this can turn against you once in a while. My wife was at the library, and there's a lot of good resources for the physicality. And my girls were probably three or four years old, and they shouted across the library, Mom, can you get the book on menstruation? <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> I was so glad I wasn't there. But ignorance about body. Um, ignorance about pleasure. We're going to go into a model about this, but a lot of parents have never had the conversation about pleasure with their kids. Um, knowing that there is pleasure and stuff. You know, don't lie to your kids. Um, for a kid that's, that's thinking about marijuana, marijuana will feel really good. You know, for the kids that are curious about alcohol, alcohol will, will feel gross and good at the same time. You know, so there is pleasure in these negative things. The sexuality, the hookups, the masturbation, um, all these illicit type things will bring a level of pleasure with them, and we'll break that down a little bit more. But, but talk about pleasure. For our family, I don't know what it is, but that Justin Bieber kid from Canada has resulted in some crazy questions. And we don't listen to Justin Bieber, but you know, kids find out about stuff. Why does Justin Bieber touch women's breasts? That conversation led to a discussion about bodies and pleasure and appropriateness. And it was a valuable time, but it was a difficult conversation. Um, overreaction. Hi, my name's Chuck and I'm an overreactor. I'll totally give you that. 
Um, but our kids, you know, they're, they're afraid that if, I, if my parents knew what was going on in my life, they would ruin it. You know, they take away everything that I have and send me off to someplace, I don't know, Project Patch. <laughs> and so they're, they're really fearful of sharing. And what I have to say is, is, I don't know the exact thing about this, but time and calmness and perspective typically slows that down. Um, and then another thing that helps just when you're dealing with your kids with discipline, especially as they get older, is have them come up with a solution also. Say, you know, I'm not sure how to respond right now. I really want to keep you safe. I really want to help you stop this behavior, but right now I'm having a hard time thinking of ways to do that. Why don't you spend, you know, a couple hours thinking about it? I will, and then we'll come back together. And in those cases, our kids tend to have um, discipline that would be harsher than what we do. And so we have a chance to be a little bit graceful and at the same time, you know, have some, have some discipline. We've talked about it already in the first seminar, but people-pleasing, fear of disappointing people, that ends up being this real poison. So a kid that is struggling with pornography that is a people-pleaser will try to hide that as much as possible, or they'll have a hard time saying no to friends that are showing them images. Perfectionism, what we find is, once again, in the homes that are the most perfectionistic outwardly, the internet has a huge power of, of secrecy. No one's ever going to find out, and it tends to be the place that, that people spend a lot of time. Um, I think that's part of the reason that you see pastors engage in a high level of pornography, statistically, um, is that it's just no one will ever find out, and it's their hidden place of, of venting. Does that, does that make sense? It doesn't make it right, but it tends to, be, tends to be what happens. So in the most perfectionistic homes, we see the most sexual stuff that, that ends up coming out. Entitlement. So this is where people believe that they're owed all the positive things without putting in the effort, right? I should have what my parents have even though I don't have a job. <laughs> I should have sexual satisfaction even though I haven't done anything to deserve sexual satisfaction. Does that, does that make sense? And then probably the saddest is hopelessness. You know, so for a kid that feels hopeless about their future, they will take every single bit of pleasure in the moment um, that they can. And the reason I share these is these are things that all of us probably have some level that in our own lives or our kids' lives that we see them struggling with. And these are the areas as a parent that we can go on offense and, and really say, I want to help you with these things. I see this starting in your life. If I work on your ignorance about pleasure, ignorance about your body, if we talk about shame, if we talk about making mistakes and making it all right to ask for help, if we talk about you know, perfectionism, entitlement, you know, some of these things, if I model those things, the likelihood of this seeping into your life and taking over is, is really low. You don't even have to say I'm doing this because of pornography. You're just doing it because I want to help you with life, you know. And so for me, this is where parents go on offense. If we spent most of our time on this list, we'd be in really good ground. We'd be in really good ground. Please. You know, I'll go through that in just a minute. Yeah, because that is the defense, and there are some really simple things we can do on defense, but defense is hard. But yeah, I'll, I'll go through that in just, just a few minutes. Um, here's another thing that, that we find is that, imagine we teach this on the family experience on an actual cliff, but have you noticed that if you told a kid, um, be home, your curfew's at 11 o'clock, what time is your kid going to get home? 11, as close to 11 as possible without getting in trouble, right? Um, have you noticed that with speed limits? How fast do you drive? I drive plus four. <laughs> but for some reason, that edge makes us rebellious. 
And so if you have in the family, our family doesn't allow pornography in the home, that's a good rule, right? But have you noticed that that tends to pull people toward the, it's almost pornography, but it's not? This is an R-rated movie, but it's, it's a true story, you know? And you, you end up falling off the cliff all the time, causing damage to yourself and others. And so what we have to say is that rules are great, but rules tend to, as human nature, pull us toward the behavior that we don't want to do. And so what we advocate is this idea of what pulls us towards safety. And, and to me, values are what pulls us towards safety. You remember when we were talking earlier that that idea is that I will not gain sexual pleasure off of innocence being broken. Our family protects the innocent. Our family values purity. Our family believes in restoration and healing. Do you sense that those values would actually pull you away from pornography? There's a huge amount of safety for that. The other thing then is that we establish buffer rules. Buffer rules, imagine if you're at the Grand Canyon and you're running toward the edge of the Grand Canyon. What's going to happen before you get to the edge? You're going to hit a fence, right? And on the other fence, there's a little bit of land on the other side, right? So if you're at the fence, are you safe? If you crawl over the fence and stand on the other side, does that mean you've fallen off? But your heart should be beating faster, right? because you've crossed a safety point. And so what we really talk to families is, what are some of the buffers that would let you know that you're nearing danger ground? You know, for our family, we don't watch any movie until we've gone on to um, focus on the family has a, has a website called Plugged In. And Plugged In is just a quick way to read about what the movie's about, what the story's about. And so it gives us a chance to, to say, you know, is this something that we want to get into our minds? And so we won't watch until we've, we've read that. Um, and so, and another thing is that we don't watch movies unless both my wife and I agree on it. You know, so that's a buffer. Does that mean that we've crossed some sort of line? I mean, that we are immoral if we ever break that? No, but our hearts should be racing a little bit more. You know, politically it was interesting because Vice President Pence got hammered um, just about a couple months ago because of some buffer rules that he has. He had said that he won't drink alcohol unless he's with his wife. Do you remember that? Anyone remember that? And everyone's like, that's the dumbest thing. He also said he won't go um, out to eat with a, with a female staffer alone. And so everyone just hammered him for that. Why would you do that? You know, and for him to drink without his wife, does that mean he's out doing problems? No, but what he recognizes is that that puts him on more dangerous ground. And so what I'll say is that whenever you establish the buffer rule, you'll probably get criticized by other people for it. It just doesn't make sense to them. Why would you do that? And a lot of times it's because they feel kind of some condemnation from it. And so I say just establish your buffer rules, whatever they are, keep them solid to yourself, but really keep them because you need a wake-up call. And so I've got buffer rules for my wife and I to protect our relationship. We've got things having to do with our entertainment. Um, when I travel, I have rules about the TV and how I respond to the TV. Turning on the TV, is that bad for me? No but I'm never going to just flip through channels. You know, if I know something and I know the channel, I'll go straight to that if I'm gonna watch like a basketball game, but I don't do, I don't do anything else. Is that, that's just my way of, of making sure an extra step that I'm not on dangerous ground. So less about rules, more about values and, and buffer rules. Teach in the context of relationships. This is all a relationship um, world that we're in. Hey, what time are we still have seven minutes? Whoa, <laughs> sorry guys, I could use hours here. Um, 
Okay, so really quick, this is a talk about pleasure that I like to do with kids. Um, how many of you um, love carob? How many of you um, don't necessarily care for carob that much? Why is that? <laughs> You've had chocolate, right? <laughs> You've had chocolate. Um, what I find really interesting is if I had never had chocolate, I'd be like, carob is delicious. We should have more carob. But since I've had creamy, yummy chocolate, it just isn't, isn't the same. Here's what's interesting is that right now, our kids can have carob-level pleasure. They can have sex with themselves. They can have sex with random strangers. They can look at images online that will give them a level of carob. The problem is, is that God didn't intend for us to eat carob. <laughs> it's chocolate. But the chocolate level of pleasure is a covenanted, practiced, vulnerable, trusting, intimate level of, of pleasure. It, it's not even, you know, honestly, we've made some mistakes by saying virginity and, and marriage night and the first night of marriage is going to be beautiful. You don't necessarily get chocolate on your marriage night. You know, it's vulnerable, it's hard, it's difficult. It's, it's, God intended this thing to be beautiful and it's not necessarily easy. But it's fantastic. And so this level of chocolate is something that God wants us to have. It's a beautiful relationship. It's sexual. It's fantastic. Here's the thing is that kids can have pleasure right now. They can have carob, but they can't have chocolate. The other dangerous thing is that if you've had a lot of carob, you might not ever get there. You could get married. You could be all these things. But the habits you bring from the carob level of sexuality interferes with the chocolate level, interferes with it. And so as a, as a church and as, as parents, we have to understand that, that we're not prude. God is not a prude God. God is a God of sexual abundance, not in the multiple partners, but in the sense of this is freedom. This is completely known, completely vulnerable, completely loved. You know, and, and our kids long for that. When you read it in Psalm 103, it says, I will satisfy your desires with good things, right? With good things, and God does that. God does that. But I think with our kids, we have to have some of these tough conversations, especially as they get older. 50% of teens would actually change their online behavior if they knew their parents were watching. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? Here's some of the tools. Well, no question is off base. Your kids will ask questions like crazy. What I say is be patient when they ask questions. Don't over-answer. What I say sometimes is ask them a few questions to probe exactly what they're asking for before you answer, because as we get nervous as parents, we can say some of the craziest stuff. Um, and so be careful around that. But we tell our, our kids, um, dad or mom will always tell you the truth. We will always tell you the truth. And it's been hard. Um, we have a, a good friend that's a godchild of ours that's going through sex change. Um, she's becoming a boy. Um, she just got married um, to, a, to a girl. Does that create hard conversations around our house? Yeah. But our commitment is that we'll always tell you the truth. We're not going to go on and on and on, but we'll tell you the truth. And, and our kids need to know that. Um, some basic foundations, internet in common areas. Break that idea that what online is private. This is not a private network. Nothing online is private. It's a public network. Yeah, you can do banking and those things securely, but don't have an expectation of, of privacy online. Um, that word's hard to see, but it's accountability and filters. Those are the two tools that you have right now to ask, answer your question is that filters, what a filter does is 
um, block certain traffic. So if they type in a search word or there's a website coming back to fulfill their search request that's, that is um, marked as adult content, it would block that. Um, that is fairly effective at slowing down their use of it, but it's not perfect. What we say is accountability is much more useful. Accountability software is a software that will give you a track record of where they've been. And so that's what I use personally is, is this something that, that I know all my internet use is, is available to my wife. It's available, if it's work related, available to my team there. So I have no expectations. So accountability is, is that way of tracking what they did online. Um, the best accountability software, the cheapest one is accountable to you. What that would do is send a record of what you did to your accountability partners. And so if your kid's phone, device, whatever is done, you'd get a record of their, of their use. And that's really useful because, you know, if they say that they're going to go to Timmy's house after school, but they instead went to John's house, would that break trust? Yeah, that'd break trust in the real world, right? Online world, if they said they're going to do this research on spiders, but they end up spending all their time on um, YouTube, well, maybe what they weren't doing was pornographic. It's still a break of trust. You want to build that idea that I use this device for a purpose. So yeah. You, that yeah, all those, each of those, Covenant Eyes, Triple X Church, Accountable to You, McAfee, those go on all your devices. Um, some of them, they replace your browser. And so if you use an iPhone, some of them replace your Safari browser with theirs. Um, but it goes on all your devices. And, and what I would say is that each one of those, if you go onto YouTube, you'll find a hack for it. And so kids would find a hack. But once again, if you have accountability software, and you go check their, their record and you know they've been online for four hours and there's no record of it, <laughs> that's a problem. That's a problem, please. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm still not ready to say Circle by Disney. I've heard some good results from it. You like it? Yeah, so Circle by Disney is really promising because it does a lot of the accountability and filtering and you can control timing on stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I do a, a question that I ask most of the kids that come into our youth ranch. How many of you knew your neighbor's logins for their Wi-Fi? Majority of kids that come to Project Patch had a neighbor's login. Yeah. And so that's the problem that we run into is that we could have the best devices and so what I'd say is maybe combine some of them is a circle is fantastic because that's a hardware device at home, but having something else that actually provides um, device level is, is helpful too, but all of these can be broken. Um, I'm sorry guys, I'm gonna race through to finish up our slides right here. Require passwords, um, especially for, we'll talk about social media, but require all their passwords for devices. Monitor their activity, and so that really gets down to that accountability. What are they doing? What are they doing online? Um, having some rules for where phones go is, is huge. And so um, what we really advocate is that all the phones come into the parents' room at night. Eight o'clock or so, um, whatever time you establish, charging stations are in parents' room. Um, what we tell parents and kids is that stupid comes out at night. You know, and so we just want to wanna ease that, ease that. And then retain ownership rights. Every year in, in um, November, I write a blog post, I update it. Um, for single parents, this is one of the hardest things is that you have a kid um, in a divorce situation, your ex buys them all these devices, they bring it into their house, they're like, dad got this for me, I own it. Or the kids that say, I bought it, it's mine. 
um, if it's in the house, you still have ownership rights about it, okay? So retain your ownership rights. That's gonna be painful. You're gonna have hard conversations, but, but own it. Um, really quickly, one of the things that I just am really excited about is recovery programs. Um, I give you a sample in the, if you sign up for the information from a guy named Matt Dobshoots, Porn Free Radio. He's got both a month plan as well as a six day plan and they follow roughly the same idea. And so what it is is that every month or every week you're coming up with a week specific plan on, on recovery. And one of the things that I really say is that focus on positive. What's driving you toward safety? You remember that idea is that when you're really little, you're motivated by external threats, but over time you're motivated by internal threats. What is it that's driving you toward safety? What values are, are there? What relationship things are, are pursuing? And so really identifying that a strong why. Second is focus on recovery over abstinence. Um, abstinence is a result of recovery, okay? So you can have someone in abstinence that's white knuckling it, but they're not necessarily recovering or, or getting solutions to, to what's driving them toward it. Um, I also, especially in, in talks with kids, is that I don't talk that much about virginity. Um, virginity is one of those things that people think is an off-on switch, so as soon as I lose my virginity, what happens? I can go nuts, right? And so what we say is that focus on, on, on recovery over abstinence. The other thing that I think the Catholic Church has really good is that they have virtues. Virtues are things that you pursue over a lifetime. And one of their virtues is chastity. Chastity is a word that we don't use a whole lot, but chastity looks different whether you're married or single. Um, if I am a, a man that's married, I still pursue chastity. That means I'm still pursuing the value of, of intimacy with my wife, purity in my thoughts, things that I'm, I'm engaging with. If you make a mistake and lie, can you still pursue truth? Yeah, so if you make a mistake in chastity, can you still pursue chastity? But the problem is if you make a, pursue, a mistake in virginity, can you pursue virginity? No, it really is a, a, a mixed up thing. And so what we say is recovery over abstinence, um, increased resistance. So this is where the filters really help. This is where not having your phones nearby really helps, um, having the breaks from those things. Um, I go to Home Depot and I've bought so many candy bars as I leave Home Depot. <laughs> and it's mostly because my resistance is worn down at that point and it's so easy to get to. And so what we say is, is Put it out of reach, just make it harder to get to. Remember our frontal lobes, for us as adults, it's about three seconds to engage. For kids, it's maybe 10 seconds to engage. The longer we can have between our impulsive thought and being able to fulfill it, the better, the better we are. Fight edging. Edging behaviors are things that might be innocent but start turning kids on. And so let's just say they're on YouTube and they watch something that's interesting like a surf video, but that moves them to a swimsuit video that moves them to a whatever. The edging behavior is stuff that, that is just titillating. Does that make sense? Or slightly on the sexual side. Breaking it and stopping it at the edging is much easier than stopping it at that point of already being turned on. Add friction to your life. Number four, this is, is probably one of the most powerful things is pursue your worst fears is that most kids that are engaged, adults included, their most worst fear is being found out, being discovered. Fear of rejection, fear of, of the hurt. And so what we say is that most kids are feeling like, if I am secret and I keep it to myself, I'll be safe. If I tell, then I'm gonna get hurt. Do you need a handout? 
If I tell, then I'm going to be hurt. So they go to secrecy. So here's the thing is that our impulse is to self-protect, but the actual freedom is found in vulnerability, is found in trust in all those things. Um, I really hate telling you guys that I have a history of, of pornography. I hate doing that. But the reason I do it is because it adds to freedom, it adds to my recovery. It adds to your ability to understand that it's, it's possible. And so if I'm living in my fears, I'm in isolation and it actually causes more of it. And so that's a real struggle. Having an environment in which people can, can express their fears, connect with someone that's safe, really important. Whenever a kid confesses something that's really fearful, make sure you understand that they've done something really scary in, in doing that, in that, in that admission. Um, develop and work a plan. And so this is either the six step, six day, or the, or the month long plan. Every month for each month, every month is different. So for your kids right now that are transitioning from a, a school year to a summer, their, their recovery plan is going to look different, is going to look much different. Um, for me, knowing that there's seasons in which I'm home a lot and then there's seasons that I'm traveling a lot, my recovery plan takes that into account. I, I do planning around that. It's not just something that I let happen to me. It's something that I do planning around. Um, you need a personal why. What is it that's driving it this month or this week? And that can change. You know, you can have a series of stuff, but this is, why am I committing this month to, to, to pursuing this, this purity? Understanding that there's roadblocks. You know, what are some of the roadblocks that I might have um, for a kid that says, oh, I'm going to go over to grandpa and grandma's house for a month this, this summer or a week this summer, and grandpa and grandma haven't figured out that their TV's got access to channels that are inappropriate so, or that their internet's not, not protected. So, you know, having a plan around that, okay, I'm going to leave my phone at home or I'm going to, you know, do something, something different. Consequences and rewards. We're pretty good about giving ourselves consequences, but it's also saying, you know, what do you give for yourself a reward when you're positive? So consequences can be something that just brings it back to mind that, that is a, what it is, is it's getting your brain thinking at that moment of making those decisions. Active commitments. These are the things that I'm going to do. Um, there's a great piece of software called R Tribe, R and then Align Tribe. It's an online way of, of building accountability groups. So it could be every day I'm going to check in on R Tribe. I'm going to read this book this month. I'm going to listen to these podcasts. You know, so these are the things, and you actually put it on the calendar, so you know that you're, you're following it. It's not just a wish; it's actually a plan that that you're putting into place. Um, share the plan with accountability partners. So the best laid plans, if you're doing it in isolation, lack power. And so give a copy to someone else saying, this is what I'm doing this month. You know, let's, so if we have conversations, you can, you can ask me about it. Track it. And so what we say is um, our tribe actually does it for people. So there are days that, that they act out. It'll have a way of, of documenting when, why. Um, asks a series of questions on victory days. It just shows it as a, as a positive day. It's kind of a diary function. But for people that do it old school, a simple calendar um, really works for that. How are my days going? And then really the most exciting thing is renewing your minds. Um, Romans 12.2 says what? Do not conform to this pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Renewing of your minds. You know, and to me, I've seen that possible. There's a verse right here that I'd like us to close on. Philippians 4.8 says, Summing it up, friends, I'd say that you do best by filling your minds and meditating on, th truth, on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. 
And what I find about this is that most of us say that's a beautiful verse, but few of us practice this. There's kids that are laying in bed with their thought life just swirling around them saying, can I just get to bed? Can I get to bed? And images are flying at them. And what this says is filling your minds, and we get that part right, but meditating on things that are true, things that are noble, things that are... And so what I've actually done on my phone, on my Evernote, is I've got Chuck's Brain Helpers, and I use this tool. I've got it in a PDF document that's in the same stuff that I'll email to you and the resources. But what I have kids do and, and parents is each one of these words, true, noble, reputable, whatever, your own definition for it. How do you define something as true? What are some movies, books, TVs that you've seen that are really easily graspable for you? Does that, does that make sense? Easily, easily reachable. So if your mind is under attack, you can get to this thought really easy. Um, what are some examples that I've personally had? What are some nature activities? Um, in the example I give you, there's also spiritual. You know, what are some spiritual verses or, or examples from it? And then some other things. So for each one of these words, you come up with your own list. And what's awesome about that is when your brain's under attack, you, you grab that, that word. And what a lot of teens resonate with is, is one of the ones that I have for pure is snowboarding down a perfectly white mountain, no other tracks. And you just have them visualize going down that mountain and getting up and going again and saying, praise God, that was awesome. <laughs> and doing it again and again and again until there's sleep and freedom. This works. Why does it work? It's biblical truth. God knows that our brains are under attack and he doesn't just say stop it. He says fill it. Fill it. Meditate on things that are, and he's surrounded us by things that are these ways. We just need to be able to access them. Um, Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for the hope um, that you've placed in our hearts, hope to connect. And Father, thank you for your promises that you'll, um, that you'll fill our lives with good things. That it's not just Satan stealing, killing, and destroying, but you're a God of abundance, a God of joy, a God of healing that takes our sins and, and separates them from us and heals us and restores us. Father, we just pray for the families here. We pray for the kids, um, especially the kids' minds that are being sidetracked. Uh, Father, just protect them physically, emotionally, mentally, and more than that, give us wisdom as, as we lead them into your kingdom. In your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.